Thanks for listening to the Northwest Yearly Meeting Podcast. We hope that you find the conversations to be helpful and enlightening as you get to hear from those involved in the Evangelical Friends Movement. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss when a new episode comes out. Now, enjoy the episode. Welcome. Happy New Year, everybody, to the Northwest Yearly Meeting Podcast. I'm going to try to cough off camera there, clear my throat. I was just telling Austin, I uh, just got over some sickness here, so I think I'm pretty much better, although I might still have a slightly lower voice than normal, which could be good for radio and podcasting. Who knows? Um, could, you know, have that little bit of that that podcasting voice, but uh, I'm feeling pretty much better now, and so hopefully I don't sound too congested or whatever on here, and I will do my best to clear my throat off mic if I have to but happy new year Austin thanks <laughs> I mean uh, it's kind of it's not really new year we can we can let people know we're recording this before the new year so it's weird to say happy new year because it's really not new year yet but you know this is coming out in the new year so yeah there you go. it that's secret secret behind the scenes you record behind early. the scenes exactly especially so, this time of year where there's lots of busyness with christmas and whatever and us working in a church and christmas eve services and whatnot it, we just wanted to get this out of the way early this time yeah i'm yep. not sick so there we go that's good that's good one of us it, will be on our a game today and the other one will just be hacking up along in the back yeah so hopefully you know you're listening to this you know, January 1st when we drop this. So looking for, looking forward to that. There you go. Well, we have a guest today. Our guest is Julie Anderson. And uh, she has written a book. Some of you may know her. We're just going to bring her in right out the gate here. So let me get her going here. Hi, guys. Oh, I just I just texted Austin saying, are we meeting at nine? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's confusing because he sends the link from Boise. So it's different time zone. I know. I'm sorry. That's OK. I should have clarified that earlier. Well, well, good morning, Julie, and welcome to the Northwest Yearly Meeting podcast. Good morning. Um, I'm going to kind of introduce you a little bit. bit and um, I met Julie during yearly meeting for the first time and where she was, um, she recently published a book on William Hobson's um, life, and it w- it really spoke to me. And I thought it was it was great. And I was like, you know, I would love to have as as me and Jacob kind of started making the podcast. We, uh, I thought, oh, this would be a great a great opportunity for for Julie to share her book. And I I read it and really enjoyed it. And I thought it could be you know real beneficial to the people who are who are listening here. And, um, and you're a, you're a pastor at Newburgh friends. Yes. So why don't you tell, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, how you're connected to the yearly meeting. Sure. I'm the congregational care pastor at Newburgh friends church. And uh, I've been doing that since just before the pandemic started. So that was a challenge to come in on, (laughs) on that situation. So, um, I, I worked a lot with the older folks in our church family, uh, going on visitation and also do hospital visits and um, just helping to take care of folks, uh, help to host memorial services and plan those and weddings and baby showers. And so 
uh, taking care of people. All right. So kind of my first question is kind of going to be just about William Hobson in general. So while I know there's like, there's lots of famous Quakers that people, people know, right? Like people know generally maybe John Woolman or William Penn or Elizabeth Fry. Usually these, these, these friends, they, they did a lot of social, social, um, work not like social work as in like the profession but work in the social fear with you know prison reform or anti-slavery or i mean or making a colony in america so you know these these are prominent friends that a lot of people know mm-hmm. but william hobson is not a name that i would imagine that most people uh would 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 know who this person is and i would suspect this is true even for people in the yearly meeting because i didn't know about him until I read your book. So um, can you kind of tell us a little bit about who, you know, William Hobson is and how you first heard about him and what made you interested in his life? And also just what is the name of your book and where people, where can people find it? <laughs> uh, I should have led with that. That's true. Things. Let's see. I know. Um, no, the name is very simple because he was a plain friend. So the name is William Hobson, 1820-1891, pioneer, minister, and founder of the Evangelical Friends Church in the Pacific Northwest. You can get it from the publisher Whip and Stock, or you can get it on Amazon, or you can just do a Google search and find it. Uh, there's lots of different ways you can get it online. If you live within 25 miles of Newburgh, you could get one from me. <laughs> Ooh, there you go. A signed copy. Or longer if you want to drive longer. Yeah. Uh, so I got interested in William Hobson when I was working in the library at George Fox. So I worked at George Fox in what's called technical services, which is in the back um, background of the library where you do cataloging and processing books and um, inventory and all those sorts of things. So I was uh, asked by my boss at the time, Charlie Camilos, to clear off a shelf of materials that had been sitting for a while because they were kind of difficult or more time-consuming to catalog. And he asked me to organize those things so that he could get at them and get them cataloged. So as I was going through the materials on the shelf, I found a notebook. It was like a composition notebook that you might write a a final essay or test or something in in the old days. And and I look at this and I think, oh, what's this? And I flip open the cover and it says um, 1876 William Hobson and it's handwritten in faded ink or possibly pencil. And I'm like, oh, what is this doing here? This is from 1876. And it's a handwritten manuscript. Well, it turned out to be a memorandum book that he had where he had kept notes um, about scriptures that he'd been reading and about other books and and other things that he uh, just wanted to make a note of like we might in a notebook. And that kind of, that got me really interested. I knew vaguely who William Hobson was because at Newburgh Friends, uh, our lead pastor at the time had told us a little bit about the fact that William Hobson was the founder 
of Newburgh Friends Church and therefore of the yearly meeting because the Friends Church is out of the yearly meet came out of Newburgh Friends. So I just vaguely had this thought and I had a picture of him because uh, the past, our pastor had put the, a picture of him up there and he had this impressive beard. It was just like, whoa. Oh, I, I, have, to, I have to say, I mean, I, I really wish we maybe, I mean, I don't really wish this, but sometimes mm -hmm. it'd be super helpful to like show the recording of this so I could show a picture. But yeah, his right. beard, his beard, he's an, an intense fella. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, I always said that uh, if I was a man, I would have grown a Hobson while I was <laughs> <laughs> I tried to convince my husband to grow Hobson, but he wasn't on board with that. So uh, anyway, that got me interested uh, in Hobson, but I, because of life circumstances, I didn't have time to really uh, dig into it until much later, um, probably... About 10 years later, I asked Charlie, could I transcribe uh, his memorandum? And so I, Charlie allowed me to do that. And as I was transcribing, uh, I felt like uh, God was speaking to me. I knew God was speaking to me saying, why don't you research this more? And that's when I found out that uh, George Fox had his diaries on microfilm. And I began to transcribe the diaries. And that's when God said, why don't you write a book? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and uh, it kind of kept me sane while I was uh, raising our girls while we were, we have two girls um, who are now, well, they're both graduating. One is graduating from college and one from high school. But when they were little, uh, I think God knew that my brain needed an outlet. Mm -hmm. and so researching Hobson and researching um, friends history in general uh, was a, an outlet for me. And then it, it developed into a book. Uh, I was just fascinated with, with Hobson. He, he was a true 19th century friend, and yet he had an evangelical streak in him. Uh, he wanted to share the gospel with people. And he did it within that 19th century friends culture. He mm -hmm. was able to do that. Um, not all friends at that time were. But the other thing that fascinated me about him was that he said yes to God from a very young age. Uh, he had a calling on his life to be a preacher from about the time he was nine years old. And he didn't deviate from that. Um, he did have moments, just like we all do, where uh, he struggled uh, with sin, uh, and and yet it really, uh, you could tell he had a really strong conscience, uh, just from the way he wrote and what he said in his journal, and so that was fascinating to me, too, that he had a call from such a young age, and that he kept saying yes to God, and that mm -hmm. God used that uh, in his life to prepare him to come all the way out here to Newburgh, Oregon, and create a, a Quaker colony or settlement um, that was not just insular. His point was to reach out to the people that were already living here, and also to draw in uh, Quakers from the area who had been going to other churches because there were no Quaker churches. 
and to uh, to be a evangelistic force in this valley and in this region. So that's what really, uh, really interested me uh, as I was researching him for this. That's yeah, interesting. I didn't know. Obviously, I haven't read the book yet, um, so I'll expose myself there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess I'm I'm interested to read it and learn more since he's connected to this area. You know, then like you said, he he kind of started Newburgh Friends and is from this uh, Newburgh area. So for the people listening who are Northwest yearly meeting uh, people, I guess that's an interesting fact there that he's more of our. I don't know what the right way to put it is, but you know, like from this region rather than someone from the East Coast or something like that. Like he's got connections to this Northwest area. Yes, well, he's our spiritual ancestor. In yeah, the yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, one of the things that I really appreciate about, do you have an academic background? I'm just like- <laughs> I have some credentials. Let's see, I graduated <laughs> from George Fox in 1994 with a degree in writing literature. And then I went on to get a master's of teaching and okay. high school for just a very short time and then God redirected my life. So uh, basically I was a stay-at-home mom for 19 years, I think. Okay. Until I began working at Newburgh Friends. Uh, but I love, I love research. Research okay. is my thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can, you can tell that in your, in your book. Um, <laughs> one of, so the history in it is really, is really good. So like for the uninitiated, so like you do a very good job condensing, like, especially in your first chapter where you're kind of talking about kind of the Quaker, just general history to kind of locate William Hobson Mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of, of history, because as, as Quakers kind of span a a quite a large timeframe and where you sit in that stream kind of tells you a lot about the Quakers because they, they've changed over time. And and especially during this period, there was a lot of volatility, mm-hmm. um, especially in terms of that's when like kind of, I would guess what I might call like the, the great Quaker schisms started, <laughs> started to occur. And you get this very, the, the branches are starting to like make themselves. But, but something that I thought was super interesting is how William Hobson, like we might claim them, claim him as like, you know, the Northwest friend mm-hmm. of prominence, but he came from um, North Carolina and Iowa. So can you kind of give us a little bit of that background? Cause, cause sure. you know, we can claim him, but you know, other people can claim him too. Cause, <laughs> but and I'm thinking specifically in, in Iowa. Yes. Yes, definitely. Uh, he could be claimed in Iowa. So he was born in North Carolina and he was born relatively close to New Garden, which was where the yearly meeting was. And North Carolina yearly meeting remained evangelical in the first schism, if we want to call it that, of uh, 1828. And so the entire yearly meeting remained evangelical. Uh, Other yearly meetings split to varying degrees. Uh, and some others also remained evangelical. So he grew up in a yearly meeting that was um, interested in reading the Bible and living by it, that was interested in things like Sunday schools, which other Quaker meetings were not. Um, and, and his parents were evangelical. 
They uh, also taught their children from the Bible, which was uh, somewhat unusual during that time because not everyone had a Bible. Um, so he also had access to the yearly meetings library because it was kept in his home. His father was in charge of it. So he was fairly well educated for that time and place, um, as well as grounded in uh, evangelical tenets. I don't know if you know who John Joseph Gurney is, but mm -hmm. had mm -hmm. an influence on uh, Hobson later when he went to New Garden boarding school. And so he remained firmly evangelical, though at the time, as we know, all friends were unprogrammed. They didn't have um, music in their worship services. They didn't have prepared sermons in their, in their services. So for Hobson, when he felt called to be a preacher, he was called to, to prepare uh, by reading the scripture, but he wouldn't come with notes. He would wait on the Lord and allow the word that he was to speak to come um, spontaneously. So when he was a young man, he married Sarah, and they moved to Iowa, probably for economic reasons. The land in North Carolina was pretty well farmed out. And so they went, uh, like a lot of people, Quaker or not, they moved west during that time. And they lived in Iowa for about uh, two decades. He founded the church there, Honey Creek, where they lived in the Big Woods area of Iowa, which was pretty much right in the middle of the, the state. And well, they wouldn't like, he would hate for me to say he was a lead pastor, but that's kind of what his role was. He, the only, I can feel his cringing happening. Yeah, yeah he, <laughs> he, he, he has a very disapproval look right now. Yeah, he would not like that. <laughs> he, he believed that, uh, you know, he would have a whole bunch of ministers. But in that time and place, uh, there weren't enough uh, ministers. So he would, was pretty much the one. Uh, and he started a Sunday school at Honey Creek, which was, you know, evangelical in nature for friends at that time. And he even allowed his son to be the superintendent of it and to do some innovations within that Sunday school class. Uh, he still did not uh, want music to happen, um, although he changed that a little bit towards the end of his life. And, and in the book, I can show that progression of how mm -hmm. God moved him that way. Mm. So after, let's see, he was about 50 years old, which is about, which is my age when he got a call from God to um, start a new work on the West Coast somewhere. And he was pretty well settled in Iowa. He had a really nice orchard and, and farm. He had a nice house. Uh, his wife did not want to leave Iowa. Uh, and yet he could not um, shake this call from God. And he said yes to God. And so he traveled out to the West Coast and he traveled up and down from San Jose, where he had family, all the way up to Portland and then up into the Walla Walla area and the Palouse in Washington. And uh, he came back and 
he was kind of discouraged when he came back from that trip. Again, I think partly because his wife was like, uh-uh, I don't want to move and start over again. <laughs> Which, I mean, let's be fair. <laughs> It's like, totally fair. <laughs> it's to, it's I mean that happens today even still. <laughs> yeah. And and to be f- like you get you kind of get in the details of this. Yeah. But for the uninitiated like this was like the time frame was, you know, this is like early settlers in Oregon here. Like this is, you know, there's not, you know, there's no like supermarkets or like <laughs> you you weren't going to a neighborhood. You were like building your house and like farming and like starting completely over like here like we we might not want to move because we're like oh we have our family and stuff like but like you can move into a nice house nowadays like that wasn't a thing and so like you know like they were like living in like a little log cabin where they had like a really nice house in iowa yeah the amazing thing was uh, when they first came to iowa there was nothing there was literally Mm -hmm. nothing and he built a cabin from scratch. And when they moved in, it was a mud floor because it was winter time. It was, you know, it was literally nothing. And they, from that, they built up a very prosperous uh, homestead. And uh, that little cabin was abandoned and they built a nice house. And it was, you know, it was really good. Moving to Newburgh was not quite like that. There was actually a house on the land um, and it had already uh, been farmed a bit and it had an orchard on it, but it was still pretty rustic. The roads were really terrible uh, all around in Newburgh. Where they moved, uh, it was called the Grubby End because they had cleared land for Uh, farming, but there were so many trees, they had to grub out all of the roots and stuff. That was a job that never ended. They were grubbing all the time. So grubby end, that's where I happen to live right now. It's been all (laughs) grubbed out uh, by now, but at that time, it was not. And so it was, it was starting over. I think the tipping point for Sarah was that, um, three of her children agreed to come out to Oregon too. So she wasn't leaving all of her family behind. Also, we don't know what the Lord did in her heart because Hobson didn't record that and she didn't keep a a journal or a diary that we know of. So, So something happened though and she was willing to come. And so they did. And they began a friend's church um, pretty much from scratch. There had been a small group of friends in Dayton, about eight miles uh, towards, more towards Salem away. And, but when Hobson settled in Newburgh, that friend center changed to Newburgh and he organized uh, the church there. Um, well, and yeah, it, it immediately, uh, almost immediately after the organization of that church, there was a spontaneous revival that happened and lots of other people joined um, that small congregation. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciated was how he talked about when he moved to Newburgh because he moved out before his family did. Yes. And when he like, he would like walk to meeting. And it would just be like, he talks about how like rainy it was. And I was just like, oh man. And he would like, it was, so it was a 16 mile trip yep. and like pouring rain. Yep. And so he'd like wake up, do his chores, walk to meeting and then walk back. And he just like, 
didn't like it. Yeah. So I, I can imagine why he's like, I'm going to plan it. I'm going to plan a, a meeting here in Newburgh. Cause I'm, and he was like, you know, in his like mid fifties at this point. Right. 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 Yeah. And the funny thing is he's just so matter of fact about it because I remember he said something along the lines of walked home in the dark uh, and the wet. And then the next day he's like greased my boots. <laughs> it's like oh yeah he had to grease his boots because the previous day he just got him totally waterlogged uh, yeah so yes he was dedicated he was very dedicated to um to going to meeting to living um you know to living his life mm. before the lord and his faithful uh, yeah. scripture he was uh, very interested in um bringing people to the Lord. He was, uh, you know, and at the same time, he was as his, his classmates way back when he was nine, they called him a stiff, I'm making quotations with my fingers. They called him a stiff Quaker. Well, and, and he was going to like a non-friend school at the time when, when, because, because at that time there weren't any sort of like, you know, friends, schools for him to go to so he was going to like a school where he would have been seen as really weird um in comparison to like the rest of the 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 culture around him especially in the south um even though his his father was fairly prosperous though um pretty well known in the area that they lived in correct yes if i remember that right his father stephen hobson uh, owned what we might call kind of like an industrial complex. He had a, a mill and uh, he dug coal and he had all kinds of, um, uh, he had a little store. He had all kinds of industries uh, in a in a kind of hub, I guess you might say. Uh, but But the region that they lived in in North Carolina at that time was very economically depressed. Uh, it was, they called it the Rip Van Winkle state at that time because they were so far behind uh, and as far as industry goes. And their schools, um, they did not have very many schools. That was one of the things that the yearly meeting was trying to deal with was to create um, schools for their children. And that's New Garden Boarding School came out of that effort. Uh, but when he was very young, he went to a school that was not run by a Quaker, and um, the children there um, would make fun of him, but then some others, uh, he said, would talk to him in the plain speech with V and thou, and also um, some others said, you know, be, you know, be, be quiet, don't bother him, he's going to be a preacher one day, and he was terrified when they said that because he wasn't quite ready to embrace that yet. And he was worried that, you know, they had found him out. As <laughs> so, Interesting. Yeah, it was. Uh, and that's just the fascinating thing to me is his obedience from a young age. Yeah. I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, last, last month on the podcast, we had Alan why not on here and he shared a little bit about John Woolman. And mm-hmm. uh, so now we got another here talking about William Hobson. And, and so we're kind of, unintentionally going through these old famous Quakers here um, on the podcast but I'm curious like what you would say is something that is applicable that we can take away from his life 
today, you know, um, I, I, I guess that's my question. What would, what would you say, um, reading about him, obviously it's, it's a bit of biography and learning about his life back then, but what is something that we can learn from William Hobson that, uh, we can bring into our lives today? Well, I, I, again, I think I would say saying yes to God when he calls, that was the really interesting thing to me is that at, you know, at age 50 in midlife, when he's well settled, he's prosperous, um, everything is going really well. He's, uh, he's the leader of a church that is actually experiencing revival at the time at Honey Creek. And God says, I want you to go to the West Coast and start a new work. And he says, after a while of working it out, <laughs> the Lord, he says, yes, uh, this is something that, you know, we all, <laughs> we all can struggle with if God puts a call on our life. And sometimes we have to work that calling out. Um, but eventually, hopefully we will say yes to whatever it is that God is calling us to do. Hmm. Um, that would be the main thing. As I was writing, I had a piece of paper that I had written on there and, and, and to keep me focused. And this is the, the main thing was Hobson's obedience. Mm. The main thing was Hobson's obedience. And it wasn't just obedience one time. It was obedience over time, many times. And he was persistent and consistent in living out his calling uh, with God's help. That to me was what really drew me to him. Um, I just, I loved the fact that even as a plain friend, as an unprogrammed friend, he still wanted to share Jesus with everybody that he met. This was important. He had the heart of an evangelist and he did it within the framework and Quaker culture that he knew and grew up in. And to me, that was also fascinating hmm. uh, because it's not like we think now, right? Uh, I mean, as evangelical friends in Northwest Germany at this point, we have embraced um, musical worship, which is wonderful. I love musical worship. Right. We have embraced prepared sermons, which is great. I mean, I do that. I give prepared sermons. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have embraced a lot of the uh, more mainstream um, evangelical ideas, uh, but he he lived an evangelical life um, in the old unprogrammed friends way, which to me is fascinating. Yeah. For our audience who might not be familiar with, you know, the differences between, mm -hmm. you know, like plain friends or like, or evangelicals can you can you kind of tease out a little bit for our audience like what kind of friend or what kind of Quaker like what his experience was like sure so uh he grew up as a plain friend that meant that he spoke with the old uh language with the these and the vows uh, he also used uh plain names for dates so he would say instead of November he would say um, month 11 or 11th month um, and for the days, instead of Monday or Tuesday, you know, he'd say um, first day, second day. Uh, he also, uh, well, this was because the, the months and the days were named after Greek gods. And so he wanted to 
erase all of that. So he was using all the plain speech that way. He also dressed plainly. Um, if you see pictures of him, you see that his clothing, uh, the lapels on his jacket are very small and he, it was very plain clothing. His wife, Sarah, uh, had very little decoration to no decoration on her dress. Um, and also, you can't see the picture, but his hair and his beard also indicated that he was a serious friend. Um, I don't know what would happen if you couldn't grow a beard like that or wear your hair like <laughs> that. But, <laughs> but apparently that was a, a style that showed that you were very serious in your dedication to friends' ways. He also did not believe in water baptism uh, or in physical communion. And until the end of his life, he was, uh, he did not want any music in worship at all. Uh, and towards the end of his life, he had an uneasy relationship with music in worship. Uh, but he did allow some of it. Uh, and he was also um, very much in, uh, in alignment with the friend's testimonies, such as the peace testimony and no taking oaths and uh, abolition and other testimonies that friends embrace. Uh, he was very much in that. If you looked at a typical worship service on a Sunday morning um, or a first day morning, as it were, um, he would, uh, the, the meeting would begin uh, with people taking their seats in silence and it would continue in silence until the Lord moved someone to speak. And if the Lord did not move anyone to speak, it would end in silence with a handshake. And that would be the end of the meeting. Um, he would time the meeting and end it when it seemed appropriate. Um, some of our Northwest Early Meeting churches still have an open worship time. Uh, and that is a remnant of that unprogrammed uh, worship service. They would meet on Sunday mornings, first day mornings, or fifth day mornings on Thursday mornings. And then they would also have a Sunday school or first day school uh, on Sunday mornings. And community was so important to friends. Um, you would be what was called disowned if you married out, which meant marrying someone who was not a Quaker. Oh, I would be disowned then. Yeah, yeah. You could be disowned for all kinds of things, drinking, cards, playing dice, um, all the way up to more serious things like adultery and um, fighting with your neighbor. Uh, <laughs> community was very important well and something that like some in it it's interesting and, and maybe I, if i if i think if i'm incorrect you can correct me okay julie but um but yeah the like the communal witness was really important yes and so they did a lot of there was a lot of meeting especially during this time mm -hmm. they had a lot of meetings around um like community discipline. Mm -hmm. So, so if like somebody was stepping out of line, they would like approach them though. The interesting thing about the disownments was it wasn't permanent. Like, nope. like people think like, Oh wow. Like you're like, they're going to disown you. It was kind of like a, 
we're going to like cut you off for a while. Mm-hmm. And then if you like repent or like write a confession letter or whatever, but before the meeting, they would like let you back in. And it wasn't like this kind of like, you know, yeah. one or done sort of, and it was, and it was around this kind of radical communal sort of practice that I think is really hard for m- us today to really understand because faith for friends was a, as a communal practice, like you as a, you as an individual represented the whole community. And so if you're out of line, it was like a big, it was a big deal. So it's like, you know, if you went to a, a pub and got drunk, it was like a really big deal. And so the community would respond, which, which would seem like an anathema for us today mm-hmm. that like somebody would be like, and they had lots of meetings around this kind of stuff. Like that was like what business meetings were yeah. a lot of times about of like, we're going to like, you know, confront this person or that person. And, right. um, and specifically during the 1800s, this was like all over the place mm-hmm. um, comparatively to different time periods. There was really cracked down on, on yeah. discipline. Yeah, that's true. And uh, well, the funny thing was about disownments was that you could still attend meeting in some cases, you just couldn't be in any kind of leadership role. Uh, But they would also, it wasn't like automatic. You would have a committee that would be formed that would go to a person. Uh, Like say uh, say I stole my neighbor's cow. So they would form a committee in the business meeting to come and talk to me and say, you know, aren't you sorry that you stole your neighbor's cow? Shouldn't you give it back? You know, we'd really like to have you back in fellowship. So it it was kind of an eldering thing, so to speak. And so then if I said, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry I took the cow. I think I'll give it back. Um, then, Then they would welcome me back into meeting with open arms. So it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't a complete cutting off forever and you could never you know come back um if you were repentant then you were welcomed right back in Mm. so it was a it was just a different time so if you read the first chapter uh, in my book it gives a brief history of friends and also a um kind of cultural uh survey as it were (laughs) which was it's excellent Oh, yeah. Well, and the reason that I did that was number one, to place Hobson in his time, because you have to understand the history of Friends in order to understand Hobson the man. But also, uh, I thought it would be a useful tool for meetings all across uh, Northwest Yearly Meeting in like membership classes or in small book group readings or whatever in order to understand our heritage our spiritual spiritual heritage Um, because uh, who we are comes out of that time Um, now there were revivals that happened in the late 18th century that changed some of those cultural norms and some of the ways that we worship but the heart of who we are is still i think uh, in those quaker testimonies and in the way that we do business by trying to search out 
and discern the will of God. Um, by the way that we are all believers together, we can all be ministers. We're the priesthood of all believers. Um, those sorts of things are really important for us to remember and to know. So that's, that's why I did a whole chapter on history and culture, was to put Hobson in his time and place so we could understand him, but also so we could understand ourselves. I guess I have one last Hobson question. Okay. I know that we're kind of running out of time, but mm -hmm. I, 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 this is kind of a light question. I'm sure that you've thought about it. Mm -hmm. If, if you could have like a meeting with William Hobson, he was alive today. Mm -hmm. What three questions would you want to ask him? <laughs> well, one of the things I want to ask him is about his work as a horticulturist because I love growing things and he loved growing things and he, he loved fruit. I think fruit to him was like candy bars are to us. Um, <laughs> he just, he loved peaches. That was his favorite. He loved plums, apples, pears, um, all those sweet fruits that, uh, and honey too. He, I think he had a sweet tooth. So I'd ask him about that. Uh, I'd also ask him to tell me more about his wife. I wish he'd written more about Sarah. I want to know what she was like. I want to know what uh, the favorite meal was that she cooked for him. Um, I want to know more about uh, their children. Um, so that would be a question I would ask him. And uh, let's see, number three, I think I would ask him about what the revivals were like here at at uh, Newburgh Friends and then within the wider yearly meeting because uh, that's something I've been praying for for our yearly meeting now that we would have a revival and awakening and a drawing closer to the Lord and so I'd ask him what that experience was like for him and for others at the time what was revival like what was it like to have spontaneous movement of God among friends uh, here in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, that that would be my my third question. I'd have a lot more, but we have <laughs> we don't have enough time. For... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like I mentioned, I'm curious about the process of just writing a book in general, whether it's about Hobson or anything else. So, yes. um, at the beginning, you kind of alluded to, or or the way that you phrased it. I mean, it made it sound like this was. A, a year spanning project you mentioned like it helped keep you sane when your daughters were young and things like that it makes it sound like you were writing this for 18 plus years so I'm just kind of curious oh, yeah. what the process of this whole thing was like well for me I can only speak for myself but it was about a, a two decades process um, wow. that, that first spark of interest when I found that notebook on the shelf at uh, the library at George Fox uh, to the process of beginning to transcribe that in the diaries, uh, researching. So I love to research. And so for me, at first, it was just the research and the gathering of information and the learning about everything that I could. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the archives at George Fox, uh, spent a lot of time in the stacks at George Fox. I spent a lot of time um, online. Not, not as much time online. Most of the older friends' works are not accessible online. Mm -hmm. I know, so I it's the worst. Of, <laughs> yeah, it is the worst, isn't it? <laughs> I, love, 
Although in the two decades that I was working, more and more of them have been become available. So there are some on Google Books and and in fact, even Goldsmith's dissertation is now online. So that's that's helpful. Um, so basically, research, research, research for me. I took copious notes. I put stuff all together. And then um, as the Lord was making it apparent that I needed to actually begin to write, um, that's when, for me, I had to set a schedule. I had to say, I'm going to write for two hours from this time to this time and just focus on that. Uh, otherwise, it's too easy to get distracted by the rest of life, all the things that need to happen, the laundry, the dishes, the, um, the chores uh, outside, the, you know, going to the grocery store, all those things that you have to do to live uh, get in the way unless you focus and really set a schedule for yourself for writing, at least for me. That's the way it worked for me. Uh, and then I also had an outline for each chapter that I, of the things that I wanted to say, which I kind of filled in. Um, for me, I, every time I sat down to write, I would pray and ask God to help me to say what uh, he wanted me to say in that area. And sometimes I would deviate from my outline, depending on how, how it flowed, but mostly I, I stick to it. So I would say schedule. I would say uh, determined to keep that schedule. <laughs> and I would say to be organized in what you want to say. Now, this is nonfiction, of course. So you have to make sure that what you're writing is true. Sure. So that's where the research comes in. And uh, definitely check your sources. Uh, even if they're not online, check your sources. Because sometimes uh, people have varying ideas or they remember things differently. Um, and you can say that when you're writing, but you want to be sure to, uh, to, be in, to be using reliable sources. Um, Was there ever a time in the two decades where you were like, I'm just going to be, this is not going to happen. I'm, I'm not going to bother with this book. Like where you're like, I'm just going <laughs> to give up on this or what? Surprisingly, no. Um, I just, I felt so called to do it that I couldn't lay it down. Now, there were times where I didn't write, where life circumstances happened, yeah. um, where things, you know, got too crazy or, or I was grieving something or whatever. And so, so I did set it aside at times, but I never left it behind. It was always there with me. In fact, uh, I'll share this, although, um, in fact, during that time that I was actively writing, God asked me to fast from other books. So I wasn't allowed to read fiction. Uh, I was only allowed to read the things that, uh, the research that pertained to what I was writing. And so that was also um, a kind of a spiritual discipline in the midst of writing this book. Um, and so I, I, for me, I, I never felt like I could let it go. I had to keep doing it till the end. And, and uh, during that whole time, I did not know it would be published. I just felt called to write it. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. I said, I basically said, you know, God, I will write this because you have called me to do it, but it's up to you. Hmm. 
<laughs> to publish it and get it out there. So yeah. I still feel that way. It's up to him. I did what I needed to do. And now he, his part is to, <laughs> is to now, get it out there. So now I'm just yeah. curious, did you have a hard time publishing your manuscript? Well, here's the funny thing is no. <laughs> the first place I tried was whip and stock and they, they took it. So now did you have it did you have a, a literary agent or anybody that or is this just like you just had this manuscript and you're like hey i want this get this published my good friend judy woolsey uh she copy edited it for me uh and then i just uh submitted it to whip and stock they have a a form that you have to fill out and stuff and then you send them your manuscript and they look at it and they decide if they want it or not and they wanted it so that was in my that was mind, it that was god there you go <laughs> that was god saying okay you wrote it now you're all good at published do you have um, any other uh books lined <laughs> up that you're getting ready to write i, I mean it might take point, you the next 20 years but yeah it might uh, <laughs> uh, no because then i'd be 70 <laughs> well maybe i don't know uh no i don't have any other projects that i'm working on at this point I'm ah, taking a dang break. it <laughs> i was i was i was hoping you'd be like oh i'm working on this thing because i really i legitimately really enjoyed enjoyed your book <laughs> you're so kind austin <laughs> i uh, we wanted the I'm scoop break right now um plenty of people have given me ideas of other books i could write <laughs> <laughs> you just tell them they should write it uh yeah that's what i say i said well that's a great idea maybe you should write that book um i don't know what the lord might lay on my heart in the future but i am taking a break right now we've had some things in our family that um need special attention and i just haven't also um yeah. Also, it's it takes a lot out of you. Oh, I bet. So. <laughs> I mean, I just write a sermon each week, and then I feel like I'm like I am I'm done. And so it's like I mean, I've always I've always wanted to write a book. That's like a desire of mine. Mm -hmm. But doing it's a whole diff a different thing, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. it's a lot. It's a lot of work. And yeah, so. I'm just grateful that I had the freedom and, and that my husband allowed me to stay home with our girls and that I, you know, I had some space mm. to be able to write that. Um, I don't have quite as much space now just because of the way life is, but if the Lord calls me to write something else, I will. So Nice. Well, we have, do we have some, yeah, I have some random, uh, these are just for fun questions now, just to to wrap it up. You know, this is coming out at the new year here. So I got I so, got just a few random New Year's questions for you. Yeah, I thought it would be fun to do like a lightning round where we would just like ask you some random questions. And uh, Jacob uh, has had the pleasure to to write them for us. Oh, boy, here we go. Yeah. So once again, <laughs> because you got to get in the New Year's mindset. I know it's not quite New Year's yet, but. Okay. This is coming out at the first of the year. So New Year's That's questions good. here. Would you rather sing Odd Lang Syne, which is like the New Year's song, I guess, in front of a crowd, or would you rather make a toast in front of a crowd? So 
So basically, uh, sing in front of a crowd or make a speech. I would definitely rather make a toast. Uh, make you a do toast? not hear me sing, or <laughs> especially not by myself. And who knows the words to that song, really? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if you're at a karaoke place and the words were up on the screen, I could do it, but. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so getting into the New Year's resolution mindset, you know, people always give things up or do resolutions. So would you rather give up soda for a year or give up French fries for a year? That's easy. I would give up soda for a year because I already don't drink it. There you go. Boom. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I same, I think... same. I don't drink soda, so that's an easy one. I yeah. think I would do soda, although I do drink it, but French fries, man, you can't like go to a restaurant and get a burger and something and not get French fries with it. That would just be like Yeah, yeah like it's... I could just get water or get lemonade or something else. Like and that's what okay. I do. I just drink water. Yeah, or French fries dipped in ice cream. This is the, that's oh. what I have to give up. Yeah, that'd be tough. <laughs> um, okay, here's another one. Be twice as fast, twice as fast as you are right now, or twice as strong? I think I'd have to say twice as strong. So I don't really need to go anywhere fast. <laughs> there you go. But gaining strength at uh you know that's a good that's a good thing at any age yeah i think i would choose twice as fast not so much as thinking like i'm gonna run down the street really mm -hmm. fast but like i'm taking it as i can do other things fast i can yeah. do my daily tasks faster i can mow the lawn faster i don't know <laughs> well that would be good too <laughs> yeah yeah mm -hmm. um and then the last one this is just for once again New Year's Eve. Do you like to stay up till midnight and watch and ring in the new year? Or are you like, mm, I'm going to bed at nine? I don't care. I generally go to bed at nine. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, we get woken up by neighborhood people banging on pots and stuff like that, which is just fine. Right. But I'm not I'm not much of a night owl, <clears throat> so I don't. You're not ringing in the new year. We usually stay up real late. Sometimes mm. we do. We'll go play uh, games at our friend's house, but right, we we go to sleep early. How about you guys? I I usually am a night owl and like to stay up late, and we go to some friend's house and play games. But this year, the friends that we go to, and myself included, we all have babies now. Like under one year old and so i don't think we are going to make the midnight Life's i like and i yep <laughs> i uh i have small kids and i haven't seen midnight in a long time uh, <laughs> except except when i like had like newborns and was waking up in the middle of the night but if i'm gonna i'm always gonna choose you know nine o'clock new year's eastern eastern time in eastern time dang eastern time <laughs> yeah um but yeah no our kind of tradition is we do kind of a fun we usually have a couple friends over and we do like a fun um like charcuterie boards and stuff mm. like that get some fancy meats and cheeses yeah fun. But, well that's all i had thanks for thanks for joining us well thanks so much guys i really appreciate it I yeah it's fun talking with you.
it was a pleasure and I'm so glad to have you on the podcast and kind of share share your book with our our listeners. Um, highly recommend you if if you're listening, um, if you're tuning in to the purchase of Bark book if you already don't have it. Um, because it it's good if you're, you know, if you are in Northeast Yearly Meeting, it gives you a, a you know a great history to kind of know where you come from. But it's also if you're really interested in like friends and kind of knowing more about evangelical friends in general, it gives you a really good picture of um I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about friends. And this is a really well researched book that kind of gives you a, a good picture of what kind of a evangelical friend back then would have been like um and kind of it's kind of sets the foundation of what like modern friends get towards so absolutely so you know if i mean yeah if you have you know some extra money from the holidays uh pick up pick up the book yeah it's on amazon or like you said you they can get it uh on the so the publisher is Whip and Stock. It's W I P F and S T O C K. Whip and Stock. But okay. you can easily find it on Amazon. It, it'll come right up. Um, All right. Or like they said, come knock on your door in Newburgh and get a personal personalized copy. That's right. I'd love to love to see you. All right. Thanks so much, Julie. All right. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, guys. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I did find it on Amazon really quickly. I mean, if you just search William Hobson, Julie Anderson, it'll pop up. It's the first thing. Um, but you can go to the publisher's website as well. William Hobson, 1820 to 1891. And there maybe we is. can maybe we can put a link. In I the will. Show notes. I'll put a link on there as well. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you for listening to this uh, January January's edition of the Northwest uh, Yearly Meeting Podcast and if you've been blessed by this podcast and you you like what we're doing please like and subscribe um and but most importantly leave a review and, always leave the review tell tell your friends and family about about us there you go and we will have more episodes for you coming in the following months looking forward to a full year here 2023 of northwest Healing meeting podcast Once again, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with others. Please rate and review the podcast so others can find it. Contact the office of Northwest Yearly Meeting if you would like to be on the next episode. God bless you.